from Australia, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroney. Okay, welcome everybody. Today's podcast, we've got Tom Ma. Tom is a business lawyer in Perth, Western Australia. So tell us a bit about yourself, Tom. Well, thanks, Mitchell. Hello, everyone. So I'm, I've been in business for now nearly 30 years, believe it or not. I trained as a lawyer, but I left law because I wasn't really too impressed with law way yeah. back. And I, I went into operations and business management for about eight to 10 years in technology, a big background in technology and worked on the Bell case as a technology manager. I had my own IT consultancy during the Y2K boom. I was a HR and systems manager for a financial services platform. But then about ooh, 18 years ago, I decided to come back to law, but not do litigation. I love doing creative work and making sure things work. So I became a commercial lawyer. So I don't do any court work. I try and keep my clients away from court, but optimise opportunities, avoid risks and understand things so they make informed decisions. I've gone on to write a lot of articles and I'm probably leading presenter in Australia of, of seminars for professionals and business associations. So as you'll probably work out during this, I like to talk but hopefully share useful and valuable information. So I'm grateful for Mitchell giving me this opportunity to chat today. Beautiful. And incidentally, that was actually how we originally met, was at a seminar. I think it was on a franchise seminar, I think was the first one that we met on. And um, yeah, it's it's been very fruitful since. So (laughs) that's always good. Okay. So I suppose, tell us a bit about what you do at the moment. Yeah, so as a commercial lawyer we, and as a true commercial lawyer, what you do is you cover virtually every area in business law that any business owner comes across, which is a bit like when they sit down with you, Mitch, and talk about a business plan. Everyone's very good at their core business that they do, whether it's services, goods, hire or whatever. That's a given. That's why you're in business. But then to understand how a business works, you still have fundamentals. You, you have your financials, you have your legals, you have your insurances, you might have a premises, you might have employees, you have plant equipment and so forth and systems and so forth. All of those things you actually still have to be good at in order for your business to ultimately be successful. And so as a commercial lawyer, what we do is work very closely with our clients' business advisors and, and key parties. So again, they're good accountants like Mitchell and his team, and then also their insurers, maybe some financial planners, maybe some other IT consultants, HR consultants, and so forth. And so you, what you do is you collaborate to ensure that you work with the client to understand what are their key issues. So often we deal with their business contracts, making sure that, you know, the terms of trade, and we should chat about that. Things where people are moving now, we'll talk a fair bit about that today's uh, terms your website and your website terms of use, or is that just a visiting place? So, but if you trade or sell something, you might need terms of trade on that. And then do you have private information? So we've got that. Then we've got leasing like physical premises, but you also might lease goods, you know, equipment. They're very big things. They're important. We do loans and securities. So you, you might lend monies or borrow monies and are they secured by a mortgage? Please don't use a caveat or the register on the Personal Property <laughs> Securities Act. And then you've got employment. So you've got employment arrangements and contractor arrangements and Please don't try and make a contractor an employee and vice versa. <laughs> You'll get into difficulties there. It's, it's like a dog and a cat. They're both pets, but you can't breed them together. They are very different. We'll have a chat about that. We do estate planning, so putting together, obviously, your personal affairs, making sure they're in order. You work so hard through all your life. An unfortunate statistic is more people die without a will. You can imagine it's 40%. In fact, people spend more time booking a holiday online 
probably not on a cruise ship anymore. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you may need a will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what else? Setting up companies, trusts, shareholders agreements, unit holders agreements, a lot of intellectual property and technology law contracts. So that, that's, I could go on, but that, that's, that's the core areas. And you probably go, wow, that sort of covers everything I do in my business. You might not need every bit, but those are the things that we help. Yep. No, that, that makes sense. And, you know, one way or another, I would say most small businesses would hit all of those or majority of those, you know, and unfortunately it is inevitable, like estate planning, we're all going to die. There is a hundred percent chance that's going to happen. And, you know, with the business, most businesses have a website. Like you said, is it just a visiting website or is it a e-commerce selling website, mm-hmm. different rules, etc. Are you collecting personal information? If so, the Privacy Act side of things. What else was there? There was intellectual property, which is a big thing, especially in IT and software development. Yep, um, your trademark of your business name. You know, yeah. you don't own your business name, but you need a trademark. Very important things as well for your brand. And exactly. Um, and especially if you're looking at expanding well, there's many different ways, but expanding in a way that you've got third parties coming on board like a franchise situation, you know, they're buying the name and your intellectual property. So you have to actually own that. Like that's kind of the important part there. Correct. And contractors, if you don't have a good contractor agreement, then they own it. Exactly, exactly. So, And I think there'd be a lot of areas where people just assume it's one way, but in reality... It's not, it's the other way. For example, like the intellectual property on contractors, it could be them, they actually own the intellectual property and you're leasing it, whereas you think you own it and they just developed it for you and stuff like that. So I think it's a really interesting area in general and we'll go into it in a sec, but just the, I suppose, the pitfalls that can occur, what sort of, I suppose, common pitfalls do you reckon people can come up in small business? Yeah, sure. In small business, the, the main thing is, and I hear it all the time, when you start a business, they say, oh, look, oh, I don't have, you know, and I, I respect it. I fully understand about financials and trying to get it going. And I say, oh, look, I really, you know, I know I need some terms of trade, but I just don't, oh, look, I'll do it. Everyone likes me and it's on a handshake. Look, everyone's in love on a honeymoon, but people get divorced. Problems yeah. happen. So, not having a clear set of terms and conditions for your business, your trading terms on your terms is really problematic. Not to make me happy, but it's actually a clear rule book about how you supply it, what about returns policy, what about rectification warranty, you know, am I paid in seven days, 14 days, do I charge interest, do I get security for payment if I give them extended to all of those things. And please don't go and get it off website or your mates that's like you know as i say you know there's no law against home brain surgery you can buy a scalpel and dental and watch a youtube video but it probably won't go yeah, not recommended <laughs> not recommended not recommended so terms of trade for your business or terms and conditions the other one is going into business with someone and it's very common and it's how small businesses and there's generally two or three types you've got you do it yourself sole trader we'll come back to that you go together with a friend or a business, you know, and you, you both bring attributes, money, expertise, assets, whatever. That's a partnership. Or you use a company. Mitchell's the best person to advise you on what is the best structure from a tax perspective. They all, all have good asset protection, but I would say sole trader, no, no. I okay. do understand as data, but everything you own, your car, your home, mm. money in the bank gets exposed if your business fails. So please 
Only use a sole trader at the very, very beginning. You should almost always use a company or a trading trust. And again, Mitchell's the best one to advise you on that. And they can be formed very quickly, but please get those structures right. But if you're going into business with more than one person, generally more than one non-family member, then like a partnership can form even without an agreement. It, It forms under a law. And it's a really new law from 1895. That's right, 200 years ago. <laughs> Imagine how adapted that is to modern business. It's not. Yeah. So you, what you need is a modern contemporary equity holder agreement called a partnership agreement. Or if you're in a company and you own shares together, you need a shareholders agreement. And it's no, it's not the constitution you get standard. That's just generic. Please don't think that solves your problem. You know, again, Mitchell to sit there and give you advice on how you value the equity and what happens if someone wants to buy in and wants to sell out. Because just like Mitchell said about estate planning, no one gets out of life alive. That's just a fact. Um, but business also, you do get a few options. Preferably you get out of life, preferably on your own terms and solvent. So you want to sell out. So your business succession plan is really what happens if, if something happens, you know, can someone buy me out or what do I do if someone's to buy a little bit in, you know, sell down to a junior? So these things are really important to have in place at the beginning. They're actually an investment, not a cost because I find when people do have a dispute or a problem or someone's died or business is going bad or something, they ring me up and the first question I said, do you, do you have an equity holder agreement? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't. Well, that's where... Actually, my role starts to change a bit and normally you've got to meet litigators, lovely people, some of them, but, but you just add zeros on the end of how much it costs to solve the dispute. Whereas if you'd worked with Michelin and I to put a good shareholders agreement, it's like building a parachute. You cannot make one when you're falling out of the plane. It's too late. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. So those are my big tips. Having your own terms of trade and having an equity holders agreement at the beginning. And again, when people say to me, and again, I've got enough work, so I'm, I'm doing this to share advice and recommendations to you. It's a bit like going to a doctor and saying, I'm thinking of taking up smoking. I'm going to tell you 10 reasons why you shouldn't and all the health benefits, but you're still going to get a bill even if you choose to go smoking. And when you come back and see me with lung cancer, I can do the surgery, but it's really expensive and no one's happy. Yep. So, yep. so there are, there's reasons why I stress these things. So investing and getting good arrangements in place is exactly that. It's an investment because then if you do have those scenarios, you've got to fall back and you've got clarity. And in fact, what they do is keeps the lawyers away because you've got a rule book there. The courts and everyone else will say, well, look, you've already agreed how you'll pay this. We've already agreed the other party will return it in this time frame or so. It really helps you with best practice. And I think, you know, how many businesses would you say it's not a good idea to have a cash flow forecast and a financial budget when they start? Pretty much none of them. They all should should look at these things. And I mean, I'm sure there's plenty that just go, oh, it'll be right and then go with it. But I recommend they all work out roughly, you know, how much is your break even point and, you know, all that sort of thing as well. Yeah, it's, it's fundamental, isn't it? Even though they know, oh, look, I'm really excited and I've got all these orders, but you've got to put, but what a cash flow forecast. And I think that's a fantastic example of what your business gets affected. You just haven't factored in. Oh gosh, I've got that rent coming up in the wages, and I've got the tax. And I've got this. Oh, I didn't. I got my first order. You can actually plan and run your business, and so having those vital financial tools, the same with the legal ones. Yeah, they're not. You know, they're not sexy. They're not fun, but they're so important to the success. And all successful businesses are built like a good house. You want a solid foundation, which you can then layer up the next layer and grow. And when other parties want to come in or buy you out, when they see that in place, you'll actually receive more value for it. So Yeah, 100%. And I mean, like the budget and stuff, like we said, with 
the legal terms and the shareholder agreement and that side of things. Get it done at the start. You know, honeymoon, everybody's happy. You can agree on everything while everybody's amicable. It's all good. Because, yeah, if you're in the middle of getting divorced or, I don't know, your partner's died and their wife suddenly wants half the business or something like that, it is a lot harder to deal with that at that point, as Tom mentioned, probably litigation and courts and all sorts. Whereas if at the start, yeah, you invest a little bit of money, you go, okay, well, if this happens, this is the outcome. If this happens, this is what we do. It is what it is. You've all signed it. You all agree. Move on. So, yeah, and that goes the same with the, the terms and conditions, which I'm sure we'll go into in a minute. But say accounting, for example, our terms and conditions are in our engagement letter. And so you're not coming to us just to do the tax return and we do it and then it's all sweet, which is the essence of it. But that form as clients we get you to fill out is how long do you have to pay us, for example? What happens if you don't? What's our responsibility for the information that's put into the tax return? What's your responsibility? Do you have to keep, does say in there you have to keep records, but it says everything in there. So the entire arrangement between you know, Moroni and Associates and the client is broken down from a legal point of view in that document. Who's right to who's where, all that side of things. So yeah, it might only be just an individual tax return and you made 25 grand, but that whole transaction is based off of all this other information and agreement, essentially. From both sides, whether it's the consumer or us, that's what it's worked on. You know, and if we do something wrong, we've signed that we agree to those terms and conditions just as much as they have and they can say that or vice versa, you know, and I think that's really important. And a lot of people don't weight it as heavily as it really should because that can imply everything, you know. As I said, how long do they have to pay you? Do they have to pay you interest if they're late? Do they cover costs if they're late? Like, they're just basic things. Have they undertaken to give you all the information you've requested that you're relying on in order to prepare your returns for them and everything like that. It's a two-way street, isn't it? Yeah. If they sign and state that they've provided us with everything and we do it all, prepare it based off of the information provided and then 12 months later something that was never provided comes out of the woodwork and then they get pinged, you know, we've done what you've provided, here's the evidence, et cetera. And, I mean, potentially that you wouldn't have that as much security if it wasn't signed that you provided everything to us. So absolutely going through emails and he said and we said so it's just about clarity it's about certain that's why you have contracts it's not that you don't trust each other it's actually to ratify so that as time goes on if if I tell you a story today and then I get you to tell that same story to someone else in two weeks time do you think you'll say it word for word what I told you no no well we all played um, Chinese whispers or telephone or whatever they call it now at school Even telling three people down in a row, it comes out as a different story. So, yeah. Even with the best intents, that's, that's right. So that's really important. And, and probably on those, just finishing on those points, and I, I like to chat on about employment and contractor agreements a bit more detail, but the best way to look at getting those things done, and the reason why I'm harping on about it is it comes from experience and, and why I don't like litigation and why I don't want court clients to go through because they don't make money out of that, yeah. is that, that a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't afford to do it. It's only a startup business. Well, it's like having a child. 
you don't expect when you create and have the privilege of being a parent or, or only even a pet that that's going to bring you money in the early instance. You've got to feed it, clothe it, educate it before you get a return on it, if at all. But if you look after it, nurture it and grow it well, your company, your business will look after you well, all right? And it's how well you invest in it. So getting good advice and getting good structures and getting all these arrangements, I mean, to try and take you out of a sole trader or a partnership of individuals into a company, Mitchell, say three years down the track and it's worth, say, $200,000 or more, it, it get a bit of a nasty tax surprise, don't you, and transfer yeah. duty. Yeah, there can be all sorts of issues. Yeah, transfer duty, especially if the three partners in that situation aren't the three directors in the company. So one's sold out, one things get messy. Whereas if you go yeah. at the start, let's just say in that situation, do it through a company, you've got three directors, three shareholders, they just can move in and out relatively easily without having all sorts of problems. So it's definitely worth at the start or near on the start getting the right structures, getting the right systems in place just for best practice. Yeah, it'll cost a little bit at the start, but it'll save you a lot in the end. It's proper budgeting because... I get people coming to buy businesses and they go, I've agreed the business purchase price and I'm doing all this. And I said, this is the first time you've done it? And they go, yeah. I said, have you budgeted for things like stock, working capital, transfer duty, advice, defense? What are they? What, what, what? I said, <laughs> I said, you'll need those. They're not optional. They're part of being able to run the business. And I said, that's where you need a good accountant. You need to get that budget. You need to then understand what you're borrowing, what you're actually getting and how you get it. It's all exciting. And especially when tr- someone transitions from being an employee to being a business owner, even if you've worked in a business, doesn't make you qualified at it. I'm not, not saying don't have a go at it, but go and get advice. Go and get advice of someone like Mitchell and his team because, as I said, the best university to go to in life is experience. It's just the fees are very high. So what you want to do is actually invest in it. People will go and buy home and contents insurance and think that's an investment all their life. There's a chance of your house burning down. You'll, you'll win lotto before that happens. Honestly, statistically, it's yeah. true. So, but the chance of something going wrong in business or whatever is much higher and we're trying to lessen that, especially in the first couple of years. And so it's great that Mitchell's having this chat with me because I want to share this information. This is the sort of stuff you can see what I'm passionate about because we want successful long-term clients, you know, that grow and succeed and, and optimise them for legitimate tax minimisation. You can have better structures, you can have better saleability. Everything is better. So those, like are, I say those to are, um, my clients with it is obviously we charge fee, et cetera, but... I'm invested in their business because the better their business goes, the more advice they're going to need, the more work they're going to need, the more money I make. So they make more yep. money, I make more money, everybody makes more money. So Yeah, and then they go, oh, I'm paying too much tax. I said, that's a good thing. I yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're making money. Let's, uh, <laughs> You're making money. So sure. this is what we're about and doing it properly. And rest assured, anyone that comes up and tries to pioneer to me, so this makes a good segue into, say, contractors. Oh, I've got all these employees on my payroll. I want to turn them into contractors so I don't have to pay payroll tax and super. Look, it's called sham contracting. You're not a pioneer. ATO's onto it. Fair work's onto it. This environment we've now got with COVID, it's terrible. You know, a lot of people have been badly impacted and it's forced the look businesses look at whether they can keep people employed, whether they've stood them down. I've had to give advice on standing down versus redundancies versus, you know, whether they're in a state where it's effectively technically insolvent when they come out. It's terrible. Now, most of that stuff 
is and being in the early days, most of my clients aren't in that area, but there are groups that can help them. And again, you'd sit down with Mitchell in the first instance and crunch it with, guess what, your cash flow forecast, noting there's job seeker and job keeper and cash boost and all that. Now, the important point is one thing I do want to say is just last week a very big decision came down in the federal court, Monsanto, regarding casuals. Now, the timing is horrendous. Because essentially what it's saying, very, very briefly, is that if you are a casual employee that has a regular schedule or roster of employment, then even though you had a contract of casual employment, parties agreed it was casual employment, you were paid casual leave loading, but you're now entitled under that decision to go back and get annual leave prorated on that regularity. That has actually got all employees (gasps) throwing their arms up in the air, especially in retail and hospitality. Whether the government passes legislation to amend it, we don't know. But right now, that's a very big time bomb that oh, yeah. no one really needed right in the middle yeah, of no. Timing on that was terrible, but it's a massive change and not purely because of the timing, but I suppose it's, it's the old adage, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Um, so that goes back to the contractors as well. If you tell them when to rock up, they do what you say, they're under your insurance, they use your equipment, you can call them whatever you want to call them, but they're an employee. That's right. So people that come to me and say, oh, I just draw a contract with book. I say, beautiful analogy it is, it's that duck analogy, and don't try it. It's not worth it. The fines are huge, the problems are huge, the insurance, you know, the work, please don't do it. And there's some really good tests and sort of self-help guides through the ATO website that you can run it through. But talk to someone like me, to all myself, about that. But don't try and restructure because you think that that might save you tax or costs. The, the, the laws are very tight and close, and anything you think you're doing that's unique or original, Rest assured, you've been there and done that. And if you haven't, there's cases in the courts and you don't want to spend that money finding out whether you are. It's just <laughs> Exactly, not. exactly. And yeah. I'm not a lawyer on this one, but I would assume this would be the case. Mm-hmm. If you do decide, yep, we're going to do this and we're going to restructure it in some way to make the duck suddenly look like a chicken, I yep. would assume in the future if that suddenly came up, the court would not look fondly on the fact you just changed everything purely to get this outcome. Yeah, you're exactly right. Not only does it get all unwound and put back, but you get complimentary fines with it, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's like cops. If you've been speeding and they say, why are you speeding? They, they do need to entertain themselves. You're going to get that fine. Yeah. Once you breach the law, you breach it. So please don't do that. But in times of desperation or difficulty or, or what we're going through is change, change management, because businesses are going to need to adapt. And we're going to have a chat about a bit more of the things that we can do coming through and out the other side of COVID because it's not going away. We're in the middle of it. We've just been very lucky that we've not eradicated, but we've really minimised it here in Western Australia and Australia to a large degree. But don't do things that are desperate. What you want is an objective independent advisor to help you, you think it through. It's a bit, again, like going to a doctor. You know, the reason why they're a bit grumpy and gruff with you is they need to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So it's very important and it doesn't mean we're going to make you do it. Remember I talked about the cigarette smoking? There's no law against it even though we know it kills you. I mean, it will kill you. It's, that's, yeah. it's just scientific and medical fact. But if you want to do it, that's fine. A bit like licking a PowerPoint, you know, I so don't recommend it, but if that's what you want to do, do it. Yeah. What we're trying to do is for the sensible business operators is to avoid those pitfalls and look for the optimizations. And there are other ways. As I said, there was other ways to reconstruct your workforce and look at things and labour hire and other arrangements. So I won't spend too long on those, but very important. Probably the takeaway there, like Mitchell said at the beginning, was also 
employment arrangements you can do on a handshake. And if you employ someone, you employ them. But there's about seven or eight different sets of legislation that automatically apply to them. Generally, fair work, if they're a corporate entity here in Western Australia or a corporate trustee, then you're going to have long service leave, public leave, you're going to have superannuation, income tax, you're going to have all this legislation, all these aspects. Now, you probably don't know them all. The employee certainly generally doesn't. So having an employment agreement actually helps balance it all out. And by law, these ones have to be a much more fair and balanced agreement when you have like a franchise agreement, it can be quite one-sided because obviously someone's protecting their intellectual property and their contractual right, and it can be quite biased, a bit like a lease, which we'll talk about. But employment agreements inherently have to be balanced because you've got things like you should have dispute grievance processes and, you know, the time you've got to give people notices or performance notices versus summary dismissal, redundancies, annual leave. But say if you've got employees and you, you don't want them taking annual leave without notice. So you, you might say, well, you've got to give us three weeks notice before you book annual leave, or if you're sick on a Friday or a Monday, you've got to give me a medical certificate, not a pharmacy certificate. You know, if you want all these things in there, you can't have restraints of trade, you can't stop them doing their livelihood, but you can stop them from poaching your staff and your key suppliers. But none of that stuff can you fit on as they've gone or if you've got a dispute. Again, it's that parachute. You've got to build it, you've got to put it on at the beginning. So getting a good employment agreement and a contractor agreement is very important. Now, contractors you can have as individuals, but they can also be companies, trusts, da, 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 da. but they are very distinctly different. And Mitchell gave a good rundown of some of the factors affecting whether it is. So rather than spend a whole, because literally I could, we could do a whole seminar and I do, I've done it probably 22 times in <laughs> four years of mine. So I'm happy to do that another day, but but that's super important. So, so please really, really consider investing in a good contemporary employment agreement with policies as well, you know, drug and alcohol, social media policies, all, all these are things are good. They're best practice. They're designed to build you the best business. And they're not overly costly to do and they're certainly cheaper than dealing with the dispute. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like it, you said, with the timing of it, so if you're, let's say, restraint of trade, so somebody's not going to steal your clientele or your staff, there is no way they are going to sign that document once they've left and got all the contact details and stuff. It's just not going to happen. So whereas if you get it from the start, you know, as a condition of employment here, yada, 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 at least that's the agreement from the start and that would be an enforceable one depending on it. But that would be way better because nobody's going to sign that after they've left. It's just no. Yeah, well, you can't even make them do it. In fact, because no. you a very important tip, and it's a good point you make here. And here's another takeaway: a very simple analogy. You know, when you go into a car park and you look up, and there's that big sign with all that googly legally writing, and and there's a ticket, and you're leaving out to grab a ticket. Now, you don't sign a contract, but if you actually bother to get out, you can't read that. Which I'm sure none of you do. But if you if you like me and you do, oh, I'm sad. But yes, I do. I read everything. <laughs> then it'll say, no, you accept the risks, and you're you're going to park, and you're not going to damage the premises. But if you're thinking, and if you don't agree, please turn around and reverse the car now. Right? But if you proceed, then you're deemed to accept these terms and conditions. You only can accept terms and conditions which you've been made aware of and by either by an overt act like signing or, or clicking I have read and accept and if you go next, next, next and accept and you haven't read it, you're still bound legally. Yep. There's yep. no getting out of that one. <laughs> but if, for example, if you're a small business owner, and I do see it occasionally when they've done their own surgery, you want to make your terms and conditions available known at the beginning, all right, of any arrangement you enter into. So you should send it with your quote or your tender. 
But if you make your terms and conditions, I saw it with some car repairers once, you know, not once, I've seen it many times, but, and they had the terms and conditions on the back of their invoice. Now, <laughs> the customer never knew what all those terms and conditions were. They never made available at the beginning. You've got to do it at the right time. That's actually a legal concept. And, and in order to have contract, they have to have offer acceptance certainty of terms intention to create legal relations. So you must communicate it. Now, a lot of this stuff can be done digitally now. Most of us do it by email, phone calls and so forth, SMS, help us. But you can send your terms and conditions and you can do things by email and you don't always have to have it signed. You can have saying, oh, thanks for that, Mitchell. I'm pleased to engage your services. Please go ahead. Here's a purchase order or I authorise you. So, so understand you can be more agile with your business. Not everything has to be committed to paper and so forth. We like the paper record. So do understand that. And that's how you can trade through your websites and do that. But I thought before I got onto that, would you like me to chat a little about modern premises leasing and some of the things that Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I think that that'd be really interesting because especially commercial leasing, there's some big yeah. big things to look out for. So yeah, I think I think that'd be really interesting. Okay, because I'm a leasing lawyer as well, as I said at the beginning, and we do a lot, a lot of leasing. I act more so for landlords, but <laughs> I also act for, for lessees, tenants. Mm-hmm. Now, the things I'm going to tell you, these are, these are facts and these are really, really important, so please listen and understand. When you deal with leasing people, leasing negotiating, they've got to make money, leasing agents and so forth, I get all that, and, and you might engage someone to negotiate your lease for you. Now, that's all fine. I've got enough work to do. But the only people that are legally allowed to write and draft leases that are non-standard form like REWA ones are lawyers. Funny that, and <laughs> unless they're standard. So here's some really important tips on general leasing negotiations and lease arrangement. And then what we're going to do, what I'm, I'm noting out there, which my leasing clients, my landlord clients aren't going to be happy with me, but um, they know that this stuff's coming up and I'm happy to share this because this is the real world. So here's some tips. So if ever you're negotiating a lease, and these are business leases, so please, this is nothing to do with residential leases. And there's two broad species. Commercial is anything to do that's non-residential. And there's a regulated species called Residential Tenancies or Retail Shops Agreements Commercial Tenancies Act. We'll just call them the retail leases. And they're not just for everything you think are retail. They can capture things like pubs and hotels. They can be pharmacies and all sorts of things, Right. So these are the types of broad commercial and retail subsets. Now, when you're negotiating a lease, there's a thing, you're ultimately going to enter a lease agreement. Now, they can be short or long form. If they are a retail lease, they'll need a disclosure statement that by law has to be brought. Quite often a leasing agent will get and negotiate saying, look, I want you to, look, we'll agree all this and we'll go by email, I'll show you the premise and they want to land a new lease lessee. So they'll say, sign this offer to lease. Now, I've used the word offer to lease. They could call it a heads of agreement term sheet. If you don't read it, and like Mitchell said earlier about what you call something versus what it does, I can absolutely tell you that if you read those things carefully, quite often it says down at the bottom, you hereby agree to be bound by the full and final form of the landlord standard form commercial lease and you'll pay all the legal costs and you have no right to really negotiate it. So please, once you sign something that's an offer, guess what? You've accepted it. Guess what? It's a contract. So You've got to make sure that that is non-binding on you. That's a very big tip. You know, leasing agents do high fives when they get uh, newbies that don't understand that. So that's, please, at that point when you've got the offer to lease in your hands and you haven't signed it, go and see Mitchell about it and crunch the figures, right? Here's some other insights, really important insights in the leasing market. First of all, I'm not a licensed property value, but I deal with enough leases and I can absolutely assure you that 
property market will not be necessarily going up for a little while. If not, it's going to go off the cliff a fair bit very soon. Once all the job keeper and the, the mortgage deferrals and everything weans off. So there's this notion out there that leases always have to have a rent review going up by 3% or 5% or 2 plus CPI. Well, first of all, that's not the real world. Right now, there's a lot of businesses that have pivoted and gone online. A lot of businesses don't need as much retail space or looking to work from home with commercial premises. So to say that there has to be, it's not the law and it's not required, okay? So if you're negotiating a lease, you know, you've still got to find a ground where the lessor, but you're going to find a lot more desperate lessors. So don't think that they tell you, oh, it's standard. No, it's not. And CPI has no nexus to leasing or property. It's to do with consumer price index. So it's what leasing agents like, but is not required. And we've got to be careful because in Japan, 10 years ago, they had deflation. They went negative. Mm. So look, maybe a CPI rent review might turn out a bit. Market rent reviews, if you've got them in a commercial lease, they've got a thing called a ratchet clause where they can choose the higher of a pre-described market CPI or fixed percentage. It's nasty. It ratchets upwards. Whereas under the Retail Shops Act, they must pre-describe which is the lease rent review mechanism for each year. And if market does occur and you go through that process, it must go down if it does go down. So retail leasing does have a few attributes that are going to be minimum five-year term, et cetera. So the big tip there is there's no need to necessarily be paying any rent review increases. In fact, they should be grateful that someone like yourself is taking a premises and paying their variable outgoings and rates and taxes. Especially at the moment. There's a lot of vacant ones around. You got it, Mitchell. So, so crunch your figures. And we are right in the middle of a pandemic. So whatever they were asking in February or a year ago has no nexus to the real world. Ask what will the world be like in October, April next year, June next year. That's where you're going because you're going to commit to a long-term financial and legal commitment with a lease. Quite often after wages, it's your most expensive part of a business and it could make or break whether your business is profitable. The other thing that came up in COVID a lot of uh, tenants came to us in early days. I've been required to mandatorily shut down. I'm a gym, I'm a beautician, I'm this, I'm that. Look, so many businesses got affected. They said, well, isn't it rent abatement, you know? And I said, no. Why? Well, the premises is still there. Unfortunately for you, you are not permitted to use but it's not the landlord's fault. They are supplying you with the land and the premise. This is obviously people with their hands in the air. This is inequitable. This is unfair. Don't I have something like force majeure or these active gods? Well, I said, yes, you do. You commonly have them in well-drafted supply or or complex contracts and things like that I do for for other clients, but they're almost non-existent till now in leases. (laughs) So because what you want to have in your new lease is if you get shut down through no fault of your own, you don't want a rent deferral. You want abatement. You want so that they're fundamentally different. Deferral means you're going to still have to pay it in a time period. Abatement means, oh, we're going to write it off. And so what you want to think about is negotiating a force majeure clause that says if I'm affected by the equivalent of a pandemic or epidemic or similar thing beyond my control or the government legislates, then I get a rent abatement for that period. But if it goes, say, longer than 30 or 60 days or 90 days, you pick it then I can get out of the lease yeah. because you might need to, to shut the business. Now, look, no one wants to go in, do a fit out that can cost tens or hundreds of thousand and move again. But we just don't know what's going on in the world. And, and unless our friends 
in other countries want to stop these wet markets eating bat and pangolin soup and weird stuff like that. There's the chance that we could be ending up with other pandemics and so forth. We had SARS and MERS and things like that. So it's a very serious thing. And, and so for leasing now, you, for those businesses that need a premises, like a lot of retail, customer facing and things like that, whereas fortunately for Mitchell and I, we can remote work, you know, but we still love seeing our clients in person and, and things like that with people, people. But really think about those aspects. You also don't necessarily want to take big long terms in your lease. So a five-year, they're entitled to it, but chop it up. Maybe take two years or one year plus two plus three. And that way, if it's going good, you've got the unilateral right to go forward. But if it's not going or you've gone great and you want to move, then you can, you know. Exactly. You can get out a lot easier. You can, yeah, if it's all gone to shit and doesn't work, you can get out. You're not bound to the remaining yeah. lease. Yeah, you don't want a 10-year chunky one because right now also the notion of leasing agent, I'm picking on them, and some of them are really good guys and gals and they've got to make money, I get it. But, oh, look, you can sign it or sublease it. No, mate. As Mitchell again wisely said, walk around the street, you walk around commercial retail, look how many full lease signs and I can assure you there'll be a lot more sadly. So it's really hard to offload that. Don't think you've got plan B or take that off you. And I've seen businesses go to the wall because their turnover, leasing going up on those crazy rent reviews, but their turnover is going down. You know, a lot of those ones in shopping centres just got massacred on their leases. Prime example of that, like a lot of the leases that they're in are shocking from the point of view of the small business that's part of them. I mean, if you're in a shopping centre, it's an awesome, awesome contract. But um, Yeah, yeah well, you're right. Mind you, you're going to have to talk a few Westfield and AMP and, and, and so forth managers down off the shelf now or the ledge because they've realised the paradigm's changing. What happened with COVID, of course, is it accelerated our penchant to go towards online shopping. People have adapted quite well. And, of course, do you want to go get stuck in a big supermarket or a big shopping centre with people with diseases and things like that? So if it breaks out again, people go back to buying. So the need, the absolute need to go retail shopping is not as paramount as it used to be and that experience. We've accelerated it. So what I want you to think about is where the world will be in a year, two, three, five years out. So, so you want to chop your terms up to be a bit more flexible. You might find you can pivot your business to have an online aspect to complement your physical one. So do you need as big a shop front, physical one, and hold as much stock on the floor if you can run a JIT or just-in-time inventory and better management so you don't have to hold as much stock? You've got car dealers just about falling out over themselves, the poor holding guys when they were told by GMH. They no longer, you know, they've got all these leases and they've got all this stock and now, you know, so... Things, unfortunately in life, things change. And what COVID's done is given the world a rapid acceleration of having to adapt. And look how we've adapted with Zoom and our families and hygiene and humanity. I mean, everyone's been actually, I think, nicer to each other as a result of it. Even with like all the restrictions and stuff, everyone's been nicer. I've seen a lot more people, you know, going for bike rides with their family or, you know, just being Mm. more connected, I suppose, even though we are further apart, but it's, it's been nice to see in that respect. Yeah, and, that, and that's what, why we're here and that's what's so wonderful about being here in Australia and, and part of the global world, there's no doubt about it. And so, so I think that those things you've got to take on board that we do change. Everyone liked to, and I said to my, I've got two teenage sons, and, I, and uh, oh, this year's a write-off, and I said, yeah, but life wasn't about a straight line, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's about adapting and how you, it's not adversity, 
but how you deal with it that defines you. And I think now it's a challenge for business owners, those starting up. I've just this week alone, God, it's Monday, isn't it? Or Tuesday, I can't remember. It's Monday. And I've already had four new in- business inquiries this week, people wanting to start a barber's store. I don't do too many of those leases. I mean, they're <laughs> small things. And then I've got a, a new tech company starting up and I've got some new software that actually they'd come away from another group and now they want a license. So, you know, there's a lot of things coming out of hibernation. A lot of people thought about things during this time. I've got other people who said, look, I love that time with my family. I think it's time to sell. You know, yeah. you know yeah. people do age. People, as I said, you are going to leave. So independent of this pandemic and, and the world as it is, they've said, look, I, I still want to retire. You know, I just need to get my business ready for sale. And, again, that's something where you sit down with Mitchell and he can work through the figures. Is it best to sell the business assets? Can we sell the equity? And when we mean equity, can we sell the shares or, or the units or a partnership interest? So those things are coming out. We'll see people, unfortunately, like we did with the GFC and those that have been around the recession in 92. God, I have been around too long. But what happened is people lost their jobs, but people then wanted to create jobs for themselves. So they would start their own business and things like that. So this is why I think it's so topical. But it's really complex. You can Google it. Google the hell out of stuff. We're not stopping you. But, but again, it's really important to get specific advice to your circumstances and understand it and understand all the financial, legal, talk to your insurance advisors, talk to any regulatory things. There's some people there in the government that are going to help and do things like that. But but it really is important in business to go in with a really good plan. And even if it looks like a little bit of work and hard work, it's easier to do that than try and do it once you're busy with work and everything's going, isn't it, Richard? Yes, 100%. 100%. And at least if you do it at the start, you know you're covered, you've got a plan. And what's the old adage? If if you don't have a plan and you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter where you end up or something <laughs> along those lines because you're just going to end up wherever. But if you've got a yeah. you know a business plan and you're covered your uh, backside on legal and insurance and you know what you want to do and the goals you want to hit, you are way more likely to actually hit those goals because you've written them down, you know what you're doing. Whereas, yeah, if if you don't, yeah, the goal is to make money, but how are you doing that? You could just be running around like a headless chook or, I mean, we touched on it before with doing the cash flows and the the budgets and stuff. Just because you're getting $100 an hour for something, for argument's sake, does not mean that it's profitable. Like the cost (laughs) might be 110. So you actually (laughs) do have to work out, okay, the costs are 60 Market will give me 100, 110. Let's position yep. ourselves here. That's going to make a profit margin of roughly this. Now, it doesn't have to be to the degree of, you know, like as an accountant, obviously we go right down to the smallest figure, but Good. you need to roughly know how much stuff's going to cost you because, yep. yeah, otherwise that's a quick way to go bankrupt. It's, um, <laughs> you know, or the other big one is obviously we all want our business to go amazing. We want massive sales from the start. But if you go and you order C containers full of products and you invest massively in that and then the sales aren't as big as you predicted, you've suddenly got this massive outlay and you've got to hold this stock to be able to sell it. So it could be worth going, okay, well, yeah, we need the stock and we need to make sure that we're covered. But let's not just get a hundred grand worth. Let's start at 10 see how the market goes, have a good relationship with the supplier so we can get more if needed quite quickly and sort of work through there. That's another area I see a lot of businesses go because 
we all want the first month of business to be amazing and you yeah. can't stop the door opening because people are walking in. But the reality is most of the time it's not to that extent. People have got to get to know you. Eventually, hopefully, it'll end up like that. But, yeah, mm-hmm. the first day of opening your business generally is not just kicking down the door. Look, that's a very good point. It's not overspending. And you want to because how are you going to get your name out there? And, and look, that was really good advice from Mitchell. It is about test and measure, test and measure. Okay, I've got this stock order. Make sure the quality is good. Make sure you've got an understanding of the supplier, getting a good supplier range. What's your returns policy? What have you done to make sure it's compliant? I mean, I just had someone dealing with child's clothing and they were going to do drop shipping. And I said, are you ensuring that that meets all the safety standards? You know, what is it going to be a heater or a fire? I said, you need to check if you can get product liability insurance. It turns out they can't. So, you know, you've got to be very careful. They were literally going to order a cargo container load yeah. <laughs> from somewhere. And I said, look, there's other ways to do it, but you want to make sure because you want to be in business for a long time, yeah. successful, and you want to make the money. Because if you look after it, remember like we said, it's a child and it grows up, that business, and, yes, yeah, sometimes in the early days you're tempted to take money out of anyone's but maybe that's where you talk about, oh, do I retain those earnings? Can I reinvest it instead of borrowing from the bank? Because I tell you what, banks want to lend money, but right now they don't know how to. They're scared. Yeah. It's, a very, it's a hairy market for them. So, you know, they're in the business of lending money, but they're also in the business of not donating money. They, yeah. they want it back, so they want security. So the more you can self-fund and you can, you can manage that through, and that's why I've very fine-tuning with your budget. On that, one of the important things to probably rounding out is you spend all that time building up that brand. You know, maybe you've, you've gone and created a website, you've got some marketing brochures, you've done some opening events, you've sponsored the local kids' footy, you're on a charity bike ride or whatever. You get your name, your logo out there. It, it takes years to build that goodwill with that brand. That's why people buy franchises, you know, because it's already got a brand. Like, That's a whole other talk and we will not go into detail. The important thing is, when you develop that, that name you use for your business or a product line or a motto, you don't own those unless they are a trademark. If you register a business name or register a website, you've merely complied with those acts to register to show who is the underlying owner. You do not own them at law. It's only who has them as a trademark. And so to get a registered trademark is a pretty tricky and technical. But you see that little TM above it, TM in superscript? Exert that from day one if that's your brand or your logo or your name. And then after a period of time, say two to three months, look at applying to register the trademark. If that's, you know, you feel your business is going to go and protect it, and then you'll own it Australia. But whatever you do, make sure you check before you come up with some spiffy name or some marketing person's told you a spiffy name that it doesn't conflict with someone already there. Yes. Because yes. It, unfortunately you can have a great business, you spend all this money on marketing with your website, and if you get these nasty letters called a cease and desist, not only are you required to stop operating, if you were same or similar or deceptively similar, and rest assured you don't want to find out how fine line it is, you might be required not only to debadge and that you will be required to apologise and pay the profits. So always make sure you do a trademark search on the name of your business and brand. If it's totally made up and ridiculous or not common, it's much more likely to be either trademarkable or, and or not operable. But please, Understand, just because the government lets you register the company name, the business name or the website, you do not own it. It all yeah, links to that is important. Yeah. yeah. And same with logos. So yes. I, I actually saw one down Margaret River. This was before all the shutdown and all the rest, a couple of years ago. And it was a prime example of what you're talking about, although I would assume they knew about it. So 
the business name, I can't remember off the top of my head and I probably shouldn't say even if I could, but it came down to VB and mm-hmm. their logo was the Victoria Bitter logo. Oh. And Oof. I was like, I would assume, this is an assumption again, that they knew what Victorian Bitter is and that's why they used it for leverage the logo and the goodwill of it. Yeah. But that passing is, off. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what we're talking about of don't do that. Yeah. Not only will you get the legal letters and all that, the ACCC could get involved yeah. and you just don't want any of those hassles. I honestly don't know whether they're still trading or what's happening with that. I just... That was an interesting thing I saw and I went, oh, they're going to get, get in trouble for that one. Yeah. It looks cheeky and cute, but it's not fair. If you want to test it ever, go and get a local football team and put small yellow arches on their back and see how long before you get a letter from, from exactly. a very large hamburger company. <laughs> I actually had um, a client that got a interesting letter and had to pay fines and all of yeah. that. because one of their products and they install pictures was the uh, copyright of a big international company that has a mouse as the mascot and (laughs) you would think you know well I'm only a small business they won't notice they noticed and (laughs) they shut that down real quick so yeah yeah yeah, you've got to be careful super careful so please Please get that advice. You, you, it's all great to do the marketing and you can go online and get Doc Fiverr and they'll make you a logo in five minutes for $5 and all, but you're the one responsible to make sure you have the legalities. And it's not hard to check. It's called a freedom to operate search. But all of these little things, each of these things that we're helping you be aware of, you know, as I always say, if you see a bus coming, you can step out of the way. It's the ones that go beep and run you down from behind that hurt the most. Yep, so, yep. So <laughs> Mitchell and I want to try and, and this is why these are helpful to have these sessions and there's lots more content that Mitchell and I can share with you, some, you know, some articles and guides and little seminar slides, but it starts with actually asking the questions and don't think you know everything. Even I don't know everything, but I know my areas really, really well and I also know when to say, you need to talk to an accountant, you need to talk to a risk management consultant, you know, ethical hacker or whatever I'm doing. You know, it's okay to move through paddocks with your advisors and that's how we collaborate to do it. And it's great to the Google, you know, it's incredible what's out there. But as I said, don't rely on that to be your only source because you're going to save monies and times on it. We want you to do the thinking, do the lifting, do all the research. That that helps, you know. You know, it's like giving Mitchell all your all your tax in a shoebox, you know. Yeah. Yes, you're gonna get a special bill. But if you're nice and organized and you've gone to zero like he's been telling you for years, you know, <laughs> everyone's gonna be a lot happier, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. And even on that same premise, like I would recommend to my clients to yeah, do the research, understand the legalities and part of the tax law and stuff and then confirm with us because you can read legal papers and stuff and go, oh, yeah, I reckon that's what it says and then I'll talk to Tom and I've interpreted it wrong or whatever. But at least doing that bit of research, you kind of have a little bit of an understanding of how, yeah. how it sort of works. I still definitely think you, you've got to talk to professional advisors and having that group and that web of professional advisors, be it accountants, lawyers, IT, whatever, is incredibly important. But ultimately, it is your business as well. So you have to be educated in each aspect, not to the same level as yeah, myself or Tom, 
because if you were, you would be a lawyer or an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> but at least have a bit of a fundamental knowledge of, say, in the accounting world, for example, what yeah. is the tax based off of, you know, the net profit and then it's a percentage. It's amazing how many businesses do not understand that that's actually how tax works from yeah. there. So, what is GST? What is it fast? Exactly. Just <laughs> to have a little bit of knowledge of how, how that sort of thing works. So true. So true. Yeah. So, well, that was great. I've got a couple of real quick questions for you because we're coming up to an hour. So, so first question for you. What do you think is the most important quality in business? Well, it's straight away to my mind, integrity. Do what you say and say what you'll do. Just, just do it, you know. Your reputation, you take a long time to build one and very short time to burn one. And people, we're in a global situation, whether you're in local community manager, whether you're in Western Australia or worldwide. So, yeah, I think when you're owning it, that's also what your staff will follow. If you run your business with integrity, they're going to be your stewards for you. They're going to help you run with it and that'll, that'll follow through. Yeah, it's really interesting on, on that and I'll just touch on it really quick. From all the podcasts that I've done and spoke to, almost everybody has said that or a, a synonym of it, you know, honesty, yep. integrity, anything like that. So I 100% agree, not just because of this, but Mandurah, Western Australia is a small, small world. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everybody. As you said, it takes a lifetime to build goodwill and a second to kill it. So if you say you're going to do something, do it and be known for that. I'd highly recommend that. So if you had one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> uh, well, I've already got ADHD, so I try to use my powers of hyperactivity for good, not evil. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Look, there's so many things. A superpower, I really honestly don't know. I um. I just, I'll try and come up with something anti-aging, but I, my quest is as I've got older is to try and make myself fitter and younger in mind and, and in body, whether that's a superpower or not. Um, yep. You know, yep. I made lifestyle choices and things the right way, or maybe that was just a midlife crisis. But, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. I'd have to come back to you, but hopefully that was a near an answer. Yep, yep. No, that's good. That's good. Okay, so if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Keep reading everything. I mean, I read four to five hours a day in addition to all the contracts and documents here. I think you learn by reading and certainly listening. Podcasts, there's nothing wrong with them as well. Uh, I don't think visualising everything via YouTube. So if the younger self transposed to the modern self, I think is, is about the importance of reading and listening to other people. And I'm a big believer you only learn when you listen. So if you're talking and not learning, so yep. that would be my advice. Yep. No, that, that's great. Now, what's your favourite footy team? Who do you follow? <laughs> All right. Very quickly. I was a Dockers sufferer for many years. Uh, I had a big shout-out to my brother-in-law down there in Mandra, Daniel Bandy. Um, <laughs> so, and then Scotty Waters married my other sister. So they were Dockers. So I did Dockers. But uh, sorry, guys, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I abandoned ship last year and went to the Eagles, but they're not in play. Well, they did one game, didn't they? So, yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm Eagles. But I've always been, I watch both, but yeah, unfortunately, the Dockers, they did my head in last year. Yeah, look, it's I, I'm a lifelong Dockers fan, but I could do with us getting a cup eventually. This is it's been 26 years or whatever it is. So yeah, You've been 26, credit to you. I, I, I think I was Eagles and then I went you know, about 10 years ago 
But I literally gave up my membership. <laughs> I was probably, probably get shot by your listeners. But I just couldn't do it anymore. But mind you, then they got rid of Ross. So hey, well, they did. So, yeah. it'll, yeah. it'll be really interesting, especially once footy gets back to normal after COVID and all the rest. Hopefully next year it's all back to normal. Uh, yeah. From a footy point of view, it'll be really interesting. I watch them both. I still watch them both. I love them both. Yeah. Ah, good, good. Okay, now you're a big reader. So what's your favourite book of all time? Oh, favourite book of all time. Ironically, for all the books I read, I read a lot of fiction because, uh, you know, I do so much news and contracts and uh, escapism. So I won't get into that because that's a whole other other section. But to, to be frank, one of the best books I read when I was younger, I'm split between, I mean, it's, it's going to sound really wacky, Sun Tzu's Art of War was amazing as a manager and I recommend it's very really short reading, right? But Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, it's outdated and old in the language it uses, but the concepts to this day, to this minute, are more relevant and more pertinent than ever before. And I I think it should be mandatory reading for anyone, not just in business, but just dealing with other people and understanding about respect and listening and learning and so forth. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Cool. Well, that's all the questions. So thank you very much. That was a really good podcast. And very informative to all our listeners. If any of the listeners have got any questions or hopefully not issues at this point, but want to get ahead of any, how can they contact you? As I said, more than happy for them to contact me direct, but I think the most first instance should run through you, Mitchell. But if they need to get in contact me, Balfour Mar is our website, so bmlegaladvisors.com.au or just Google me, Tom Mar, and only the Irish would spell it this way, M-E-A-G-H. E-R. Uh, there's lots of info and videos and articles on there, but yeah, you can find stuff out there. And if, if there's specific things that you feedback to Mitchell, we get enough. I'm happy to do another session, or I've got some seminars, some old seminars and sessions and PowerPoints that I can share for your audience if you like there as well, Mitchell. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you very much, and thank you to all the listeners. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the future. You've been listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Mitch Maroney Show. Stay tuned for more.